Can we give God thanks for just some of the students who step, step forward and lead us in worship here? This song was a perfect segue and setup for what we want to talk about this morning, and that's how it is that um, we understand change and where change comes from. God has been doing a work of change in each one of us for a very long time, and as we were reminded again this morning, that's that which he has started, he will bring to completion. Our lives are the platform of the change that God wants to create. God invites us into the redemptive process of all things. And each one of us open ourselves up and we say, Lord, start with me. God's been working in my life for a long time now. One of my favorite childhood pictures. I think this picture was taken the day I drove to Dort College. In my driveway with my parents before I left. I was so sad to leave that car. And my parents. (laughs) But if you would have told that guy in 1996, right before that 28-hour drive, what would all change and transpire in that time, What would happen when we actually begin to lay our lives down? Right before this, this guy was uh, voted most likely in his class to make six figures first. Then I went on to get kicked out of a Christian college. Before taking a year off, and before coming here. And finding faith and finding a way to come alive in a whole new way. Fourteen years later, I would drive to this place again, except it would be only two blocks, and it would be in that car. This is what we call upward mobility, people. And I never would have imagined that. I could have never foreseen all the things that God has in store, and if every one of us who work here were to stand up on this stage and take our turn, we'd all tell you some similar story. How this future that God unfolds and the change that he brings about in each one of us and in the world around us, we think we're grasping at for control, but we really have no idea. We really have no idea. If you would have told me this is what my family was going to look like, I would have never believed you. If you would have told me that, Aaron, it's after you put away your promiscuous ways, that God will allow you to have a family of five children with four different women. (laughs) That doesn't even make sense. (laughs) My wife doesn't like that joke. (laughs) She says, you know, we also have five children from four different men, right? I've shared with you openly over the past year, just sort of, it's been a year of change for us, of transition. Our family, we're still sort of swirling and is trying to find our new normal. Joseph, in the top right upper hand corner, came home and joined us in October. He's now 15 years old. 
and it's been this weird, wild ride as a family trying to figure that all out together. We broke all the rules. You're not supposed to adopt while breaking birth order, and this has sort of been the story all the way through, but I find the more that Jesus keeps wrecking my plans and the more that he keeps upending my life, the more alive I become, and it's the scariest thing in the world to surrender control of our lives and our ambitions and our dreams, and I still am not good at it, but every time God takes me there again, it's when I find life in new ways. You know what I'm talking about. Those leaps of faith where you jump to the other side and you realize you can actually stand taller. You become more you. Every time you step more fully into God's plan, you become a little bit more free. I never would have known that when I first took that picture of Joseph eight years ago, I never would have known that when they told him, hey, the sponsor guys come and go in and get your best shirt on because they're going to take a picture of you. I never would have known this little boy coming out of an Islamic family, parents both passed away in horrific, horrific ways, would become part of my family's story. Joseph shared this picture when he preached his first chapel here at his school. He talked about how life is a mystery. After chapel today, I'm going back to Sioux Center Christian School, and I'm listening to him preach again this afternoon, and we sat last night with our notes side by side, both preparing sermons for today. His was on how your future is hidden in God. That's what he wanted to talk about today. I was trying to talk about change and realize we're kind of preaching the same sermon. Maybe I should steal his notes. He put these stories and these pictures side by side and said that boy on the left would have never imagined he'd become the boy on the right because your future is hidden in God. And everything that we could imagine for ourselves and probably kick down doors to try to create could be better off received than taken. You see, we are being given a kingdom. And we're never told we have to take these things. We are receiving A kingdom. A kingdom that transcends any earthly authority. A kingdom that is bigger than your best aspiration for yourself. A kingdom that is terrifying when you don't know what it fully looks like when it finds its way all the way into you. But the only kingdom that can give you not what you only want, but what you actually need. A kingdom in the imagination of Christ that has the best possible, most fully alive version of you. We know full well the gospel demands change of us. We're just not always sure how that change is supposed to happen. Sometimes we work really, really hard at it. Sometimes instead of receiving, we're trying to push and lean maybe a little too hard. If we look at the way the church has interacted with culture around us, this is a term that's arisen in the last number of years, number of decades in America. We talk about the culture wars. It's because every one of us know the gospel demands change, not only within us, but in the world that we interact with, that the kingdom of God is advancing forward. And then we kind of figure that in order to be on its side, we must be fighting against 
something. And so we see the church engaging in what culture is referred to now as culture wars, the culture of this kingdom against the culture around us. And as Christians, we often feel like we're straddling these two worlds, being in it and not of it, against it and yet for it. And we don't know how to understand the tactics of that kind of a struggle. And sadly, so often we've come up looking really ugly in the way that we've done it. We've been talking all semester about why people are leaving the church and why that matters and what we need to hear within that. And I feel like every time we lose the gospel, it's not manifested in a beautiful way on behalf of the church. When we're trying to impose a kingdom rather than receive one. When we're more interested in changing others rather than allowing God to change us. When we haven't shown everybody how alive we become when we lay down our own lives. We risk stealing one of the most beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's resurrection power. As we begin to rely a little more on our own strength and less on his. Sometimes we can be the very reason in the middle of that that people are getting pushed further away from Christ rather than invited more fully towards him. The scenes that exist in our culture through these culture wars, all the big hot-button topics, wondering what we look like when these images appear on the evening news. You see, we know that this gospel demands change, and we know that we're supposed to be a part of enacting it, but how do you do that? I mean, we're supposed to be absolutely all for it, but how do you be militant but not militant? How do you be passionate but not offensive? How do you not just be reactionary and lean forward but not be picking fights? And how do you do all of that in a way that is beautiful? And so what we're trying to figure out of this place. We wrote it into the mission statement of this school to develop effective kingdom citizens. To be effective is to affect something. That means to change it. That's the goal. That's why you pay your tuition dollars. That's why your parents dropped you off here. You drove here. That's what we're trying to do, right? I've got to be on a committee at Dort over the last three years as we rewrite the educational task, the philosophy of why we do what we do here. And we have this weird word, this Dortism of serviceable insight. Which is really like take, trying to figure out what it means to apply the wisdom of Christ in today's everyday world in every topic that comes. The wisdom of God that still works. The Jesus who still plays in 10,000 places and finds a way through his people to want to make that beautiful. So how do you affect change? How do you become an effective kingdom citizen? How do you embrace change? How do you, how do you help bring about that about? How do you allow that to take place in your life? And how can we do that in beautiful ways? With whatever the next topic is that's coming up in culture. And in a culture that's so binary, that says everything's either this or that, or it's good or it's bad, it's left or it's right, how do you find the place in the middle of all of that? How do we talk about the beauty of a gospel in a nation, in a cultural moment that is trying to figure out what it means to be incredibly loving in every LGBTQ conversation? 
to search the scriptures. Be passionate about the truth of God. Be passionate in, the, in our belief that, that his design for us is what gives us life. And knowing that we have to have that in respectful and beautiful ways with all of his children. It means not only just being for something and against something else. It means being willing to stand in really strange and odd places. Jesus modeled this so beautifully, didn't he? The Jews wanted him to be all for them. But even then he couldn't do it, right? He had to, he had to demonstrate that his kingdom wasn't like the one that they wanted. And that the Barabbas bet wasn't going to pay off. I took this bumper sticker some time back. This picture, this bumper sticker, it struck me. Because I think this is so often what we think our Christianity is supposed to be. A list of things that we're for and a list of things that we're against. But we're supposed to be for all the people who believe all of those different things. And we're supposed to be for the absolute truth of God. And we're supposed to be for finding a way to create effective change for those truths in the lives of all of those people, not leaving any of them behind. And what an incredibly difficult task. What you have been asked to do is not easy. Some would argue what you have been asked to do in the middle of that might just be the hardest calling that has ever been given. Some would say it's impossible. But I guess so is coming back from the dead. So we get to put that at the, beginning, at the middle of the story and then work our way out from there. And we get to free ourselves from a narrative that says you're either for this or against that. Jesus surprised so many people who thought they had that line figured out, didn't he? They knew exactly what it was supposed to be to follow all the laws of God. And then Jesus blew their doors off. And said, actually, I, I, I want all of them. My arms go way wider than your laws do. My love is deeper. And it will empower you the ability to forgive even those who have offended you in the worst possible ways. And I will give you a pool and a truth that is deeper than anything you have ever known. And you won't have to pick sides anymore like that. You will be the curiously, weirdly different people who will be given an ability to appeal across spectrums. I'll give you a kingdom, Jesus says, that will transcend the nations and the languages and the tribes. I will transcend national boundaries. I will transcend the differences that everybody has used to classify in and out, left and right, right and wrong. So we don't need to just come up with how we think change has to happen and then ask God to come on our back and join our side. The churches try that so many different times throughout history, haven't we? Failing every time. We see it in so many different ways in our contemporary culture. I took this picture of a picture hanging up in a Christian bookstore. This is sort of a summary statement of all of our ambitions, right? If we have some sort of ambition, we just want to sort of clothe that in some sort of blessing from God that entitles us to be right and not have to second guess. Angel wings built into a flag.
Brian Zahn, in his book of Farewell to Mars, starts off talking about how the first time the military and the church in America ever engaged was when chaplains came forward in World War I and sent blessings over soldiers before they'd go overseas. But in World War II, the enemy was so obvious because it was this Nazi power, this horrible bombing in, in Hawaii, and it just made it so obvious that they're obviously wrong and we are obviously right. And then when the Cold War followed that, it just made the sides so easy to draw in between. So God must obviously be with us. And the second we allow those things to happen into our lives, we fail to love our enemies. We step outside the narrative of the gospel and we take on a very different one. Our soul should break in half, in hurt, when we see these divisions in the world. Because we've been given the very gospel that's supposed to reconcile these things. Another one I saw recently. Trying to take a truth of God and wash it over something that we want. Employing God as our lucky rabbit foot. The holy water sprinkled over our own ambitions. So we don't have to question what we're doing. The culture wars and the wars of words and ideologies. But we're given a bigger narrative than all of those and one that swallows all of them up. It'll always be the temptation to fall into these battles and to believe that we become this defender of the faith when we pick a side. But we're called to the gospel of enemy love. We're called to the ability to forgive, to offer something the world hasn't seen before. Just like they hadn't seen it before Christ. This command that was given us at the beginning, you, you may have seen this passage in a class at Dort before. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule. To be made in the image of God means the so that. To be made like God means to be given authority. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them. To be blessed by God means to be filled with the potency and the potential of life. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this command still holds to steward creation in this way. And he crouches, but culture making says it like this. What is most needed in our time are Christians who are deeply serious about cultivating and creating, but who wear that seriousness lightly. Who are desperately trying to change the world, but also wake up every morning eager to create. Can you see the reflection of the cultural mandate passage in that? And how to be desperately wanting change, but also knowing that the way at the end of the way it gets done isn't through culture warring, but through culture creating. See, to be made in the image of God actually also allows us to create things that the world hasn't seen before. So that means not a Christian church that sits on its heels and reacts to every conversation around us, but one that leads them. And leads them into new possibilities and over new horizons that have not been imagined before. Dort faculty member reminded me of this recently in a conversation about Pentecost. That Pentecost was God's solve for an imagination shortage. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. You'll be able to see things through the power of the Holy Spirit in the image of God that is within you to create and co-create with God possibilities the world hasn't seen. I'm going to give you visions. I'm going to give you dreams. I'm going to give you possibilities so you get to be the hopeful voice in the midst of a despairing world. You get to envision. You get to lead the cultural conversations. You don't get to engage in a culture war. You get to culture make. You make something that everybody else isn't doing. Lead the conversation. Don't respond to it. Don't pick a side. I've created you for more than that. I've empowered and enlivened you with my imagination, God says, to be a better solve than what the world has done. Even on my servants. I'm going to cross social strata. I'm going to cross the genders. I'm going to cross all the stuff that you categorize people with, and I'm going to empower all of them, if they are in me, to have an imagination and a mind that is bigger than all of this. Pentecost is God's solve for humanity's imagination problem. And when we couldn't answer the cultural mandate fully, when we couldn't answer the Great Commission fully, God's like, well, I'm just going to put me inside of you then. And I'll share my imagination with you. So you can dream bigger dreams and affect bigger change. And not in a way that you're compelled to do this so you will win my favor, but in the fact that you are already free to do this. Paul says it like this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of this that's happening in the Spirit is happening in a spirit of freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If you really pay attention to the grammar in the Gospels, You see, God puts more verbs ever on himself than he ever does on us. You see, he's not calling actually for more activity. I think he's calling for more passivity. A little while back, I was had a kind of revolution of thought when it came to preparing messages. Francis Chan talked about um, preparing yourself and not your sermon anymore. About having a greater posture of passivity rather than activity. Of realizing that if we allow God's imagination to have what God is envisioning, then we get invited into his dream rather than asking him to bless ours. And I like that. I don't want to be called to transform the world, but I'd love to be called to be transformed. But that unveiled face, that means taking the mask off. And being vulnerable enough to let him have his way in a community, to let that happen within us. And before him, to let him have his way in us. Elsewhere in the book, Andy Crouch says it like this. To be Christian is to stake our lives on this belief. The only cultural goods that ultimately matter are the ones that love creates. Isn't that true? And isn't that beautiful? Do you understand the extent to which your imagination and your life is enlivened with the power and activity of the Holy Spirit? Do we understand that if we just simply take our mask off and stop trying to impress and stop trying to please both everybody else and God, then we allow ourselves not to be active but to be passively transformed, being transformed by a 
something bigger than ourselves. That's the invitation of the gospel. And that's the language of grace. You're not obligated to transform the world. God is going to transform the world. I am making all things new, says the voice from the throne. But I would love it if you'd come along on the journey. And you'll come more alive if you enter into this than in anything else. Seniors, you have dreams and ambitions and plans. But are they wrapped up in this vision? See, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of our faith, that we get to be people of ridic ridiculous possibilities. That when the finality of death got broken, and when the sun broke on Easter Sunday morning, new horizons of possibilities began for all of creation because of that moment. And we get to affect change in the light of that reality in the light of that reality, and that's who you are, completely and utterly changed and transformed by that moment, defined at the center of your story by impossibility of life that came out of death. What do you want God to change today? What do you want to see different in your life? What do you want to see different in the world around you? I think that prayer has to start with this. Lord, start with me. Will you stand with me as we pray this together? If it's true that where two or three are gathered, there the Lord is. And if it's true that the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom... And we stand in this moment in freedom. And I ask you to close your eyes and join me in prayer. Father God, in our silence and in our stillness, we ask that you would open not the eyes of our face, but the eyes of our faith. To see around us that even as we stand still, you are fighting for us. Father, give us eyes to see into the rest of our day. Eyes of faith. To allow our hearts to dream the impossible. Because you died to make that our reality. And for all the longings that you've placed within our heart to see change within us and within you, within the rest of the world around us. God, we say, have your way. Spirit of God, I ask you to point out to each one of us right now the masks that we wear that you're asking us to unveil so we can see you more fully, so we can experience your work more. Father, enliven our imaginations. Teach us to dream of redemption the way that you do, so we can be free to be a part of its enactment. And free us from our culture wars so we can be like you, a culture maker. Father, give us eyes to see these things. Hands and feet and mind to follow. 
as you carry us into this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Have a great day.